Before we get into our text today, which, by the way, is Joshua 22, so if you want to turn there, that'd be great, um, I do want to remind you of where we have been, because Joshua is just such a weird book. Um, it tells a story, but it does it in very choppy ways. So we start with a bang, with them coming in and taking Jericho. They march around the walls, and they blow the trumpets, and everything comes tumbling down, and God gave Jericho, this mighty city, into the hands of the Israelites. Praise God. They got cocky. They go to the next city, and it's I, AI. And they go, and they think, ah, no, we can do it, but God didn't tell them that they could do it. They go up without any sort of empowerment from God, and they get run out with the tail in between their legs because one person in the camp had stolen something that was supposed to be dedicated to destruction at Jericho. God was judging them through a very small city where they really should have won because they were being faithless. So they correct that sin, God gives them the okay, they go and conquer I, and then for the rest of the story, they conquer and they conquer and they conquer, all the way up until chapter 13, when all of a sudden, we get a break in the conquering. In chapter 13, God recognizes, Joshua, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're getting up there in years, buddy. Um, maybe we should just divide up the land for now. Maybe it's time to stop conquering. And so from 13 all the way until 21, we have just real page turners worth of God dividing up the land. Just real good bedtime reading material. <laughs> Incidentally, if you ever feel like your kids are having a hard time going to sleep, the first couple chapters of Chronicles, excellent reading material for sleep time. But there's this awkward thing that at the beginning of 13, God says, there is yet very much land to be taken. And at the end of chapter 12, he says that God has given them everything, everything that he had promised. And we get a similar awkward thing here at the end of 21, where it says, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. None of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And I skipped the verse that I meant to read. So there in 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. But then, if we skip over to 23, we, we just have this awkwardness where they still have land yet to take. But wait a second. God gave it to them all, or gave them all, gave all of it to them. Lots of words there. But they still have to take it. It's awkward. It's awkward. And then in the middle, we have today's text, which is also awkward. So let's go to the Lord in prayer so that we can uh, wade through this awkward mess that is the last half of Joshua. So Lord, we do thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for what of an encouragement it has been. Uh, to our body. I'd, I've heard several people talking about how, how great it is to hear your mighty works and how you drove out people before your people. Lord, this is hard. Uh, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, and it's hard when we start to try to understand the text, especially in light of who you are and how this is all just a shadow of what is to come. So God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and Spirit, would you come and teach us what you have for us today. It's for the good of the church and for Jesus' glory that we pray. Amen. All right. 
So let's start reading in chapter 22. At that time, at the time when he had divvied up all of the land, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Down to this day, you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to the tents in the land which was your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandments of the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So the land that God promised Israel was this little strip in the Middle East. We call it the Gaza Strip for, for modern-day applications. But most of it was this area in between the Jordan River and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. But when they got to the Jordan River, three of the tribes, or two and a half rather, saw the land and they saw that it was good for cattle, which is one of my favorite lines in all of the scripture because it repeats itself. It's like, oh, this was good land. Like cows saw this land and they said, that's where I want to live. And so the, the tribes that saw this land and had lots of cattle, they said, well, our cows like the land, we like the land, let's just stay here. They had not gone in and conquered any enemies on the other side of the Jordan yet. Um, and so when Moses, on the other side of the Jordan, with all of the cities on that side conquered, he's looking, he doesn't get to go into the promised land, but he hears these two and a half tribes say that we want to keep this land instead of going on to the other side. He says, great, you can have it on one condition. When they go in to conquer, you go with them. It wouldn't be right for 10 of the tribes to have to go take their land individually without your help. Go and help your brothers. And so that's exactly what they did. When um, Joshua crosses the Jordan with, the, um, with all the people of Israel and they go and take Jericho, Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh and Gad, they're among the people of Israel. They're going and they're conquering. They left some of their stuff behind on the other side, and they lived in tents on the, uh, on the Canaan side of Jordan, but they kept what God had commanded them to do. They went with their brothers and conquered. And now, for whatever reason, Joshua is slowing down, and he says, it's time to stop fighting for a little bit. God has given us rest. Our enemies aren't attacking us, and we don't necessarily have to go to war right now. You guys can go home. Go see your cows. Go see your wives. Go see your kids. And praise God, they get to do it. He gives them a warning. Only be careful to observe the commandment that the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments. Okay. Go with blessings. Make sure to keep the law. We pick up in verse 7. Now the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers of the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua had sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock and silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. 
And so the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting with the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. So they get to go back, and not just with themselves, but with riches. We keep reading. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now, this is a pretty normal thing until the tabernacle. And once the tabernacle is built, there is one altar, and that is the altar in the holy place. And there is actually strict commands not to make any, or, any more altars and not to worship at any other altars. And Joshua warned them, be very careful to keep all that the Lord had commanded you. And here they go and build an altar. Let's keep reading. The people of Israel heard it, and they said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land in Canaan, in the region beyond, about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered to Shiloh to make war against them. They got their army together because of an altar, a heap of stones. They're getting ready to go to war against their brothers. Verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent the, to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. You guys remember him? Phinehas, he's a fun guy. When they were wandering in the wilderness, Phinehas noticed that there was a man who laid with a Midian woman. And he took a spear in his hand and he killed them. He was so zealous for the holiness of the people of Israel when one of the sons of Israel was going and sleeping with an idol worshiper, he killed them both. This guy, Phineas. Makes sense that they gathered an army. <laughs> you know, if that was just one guy transgressing and he was willing to go that far, it makes sense that Phineas would be willing to gather an army to go and topple and it's three tribes that would be going into idolatry. Let's see what Phineas says. Verse 14, And with him ten chiefs, one from each tribal family of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough sin at Peor from which we have not yet cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn this day away from following the Lord? If you remember... Um, the, the sin at Peor was, was Achan. He was the guy that stole some stuff from Jer uh, Jericho that was all supposed to be destroyed, and it wasn't. Phineas says, we're still recovering from that. Do you guys really want to multiply sins upon sins that God will come down and judge us?
And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar on the other than the altar of the Lord God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the things devoted and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Remember, because of Achan's sin, lots of men died. When they went to battle and I, lots of men died that didn't have to because Achan sinned. And now how much more so because you guys are doing this, this heinous idolatry. And it's interesting, they offer a way out. I think two things are particularly interesting about their, their response to this altar. Number one, that they start talking before they th start shooting arrows. They come and say, <clears throat> do you have anything to say for yourself? And two, they offer a way out. And the way out is this, if on that side of the Jordan, you guys are just so full of idolatry, just come onto our side. We will divide our land with you. We will take some of our possession and give it to you if only it means that you stop your idolatry. If being on that side of the Jordan means that you have to worship idols, then don't stay there. Come over here. And again, these are people with swords in their hands. They're taking this very seriously. And yet, for the sake of their brothers, they do offer a way out. Fascinating. Let's hear their response. 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the family of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. If your accusation is true, then let us all be wiped out. Four, building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you and the people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not come to say to our children in time to come, you have no portion with the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us of our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, a copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day and following, from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. Just in case. That's why they built this altar. It was just in case. Just in case on that side of the Jordan, you guys say, because you have the temple, the tabernacle, that we don't have any portion with you. Just in case, we want to make sure that we have something standing that says, no, we do serve the same God. 
And so with this heap of stones, we have made a copy of the altar of the Lord so that you remember we worship the same God you do. And so that in years to come, your children will not kick our children out from serving the Lord and make them idolaters like you're accusing us of being today. We made this as a witness, not as something that we can use. It's a replica, not something that is for utility purposes. So Phineas, the priest and chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the whole families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, spoke that it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, just in case you forgot who we're talking about, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned, to the peop- uh, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the, the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And that is our passage for today. You see what I mean about awkward? I mean, it's great that everything ended well, but like, why is this here? Why do we have this story? And one thing that modern translations do is they try to help us, and it's very sad that they try to help us. There in 34, they called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us and the Lord. The Hebrew word for witness is ed, which is just funny. That's all. There's, there's no godly insight there. It's just, just a joke. Like, they called the altar ed. And so in my mind, and some of you older folks too, you're, you're thinking, Wilbur. But, uh, <laughs> but why is this text here? <laughs> I was wondering whether or not that one was going to land. I'm glad it did. Um, <laughs> now, why is this text here? We have it between the beautiful proclamation, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Between that and the logical extension of that in 23, that they don't have all the land. And Joshua in 23, I'm just going to read one verse because that's, or two verses, that's not my passage today, but two verses, Joshua warns Israel saying, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations that remain among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord has given you. Pretty stark warning. And when we turn the page over to Judges, we see that warning fulfilled. And then when we turn it over to Samuel, we see it fulfilled. And then when we turn it to Kings and Chronicles, we see it fulfilled. They didn't ever take all the land that God promised them. And yet, in some sense, God did give it to them. What gives? What about this altar? Why, is, why do we get a chapter about infighting? Why don't we get more chapters about them going and conquering? Well, because there aren't any more chapters about them going and conquering. They're done for now. 
God gave them all the land that he promised them, and they, for whatever reason, right now are not taking it. Instead, they're going home and they're settling in. Now, praise God that they were not actually committing idolatry. Okay, that is excellent. We shouldn't be looking at this saying, well, yeah, but they built an altar, and that's kind of close to committing idolatry. That, that's true, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that the people of Israel at this time were so concerned with holiness because they had learned their lesson. They had learned their lesson from watching Achan and his family bring suffering upon the rest of Israel. They'd learned their lesson from watching their parents die from their faithlessness in the wilderness. They'd learned their lesson by seeing time after time after time God was good and he answered his promises and they took city after city after city. One of the really cool things in chapter 13 is that uh, it makes specific mention that Joshua had killed almost all of the giants in the land. There were, in fact, giants. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And Joshua killed most of them, whether personally or with his army. Whatever, it's fine. They killed them. Things that should not have happened with a bunch of wandering shepherds, shepherds whose military training was wandering in the desert. Not very good training, let's be honest. They were able to come in and conquer giants and to tear down walls because the Lord was with them. Praise God. And because he, they were so concerned with this holiness, they were even willing to go and wipe out their brothers if needed. Now, there is a general principle to be learned here. If you have a problem with your brother, talk first. Okay? <laughs> even if you have to have your sword on your hip, talk first. Get their side of the story. But I don't think that's all. We talk a lot uh, at FRAC about the whole Bible being about Jesus. And with passages like this, you might kind of scratch your head about that. In what way is this about Jesus? And again, why is this story even here? Well, let me tell you. This story shows us a little bit of a picture about how people can do well to a point and stop. And maybe you, you know what this is like. God has given us lots and lots of commands in the New Testament, and most of them are relatively simple to understand. And we try to make them complicated so that we don't have to obey them. Um, but we hear the commands of God, we know what he wants from us, and we do some of it. Maybe this is just me, but I think it's some of you too. We hear what God wants us to do, and we come up short of doing all of it. What does God want from Israel at this point in time? He has given them all of this land, and they just need to go take it. He wants them to go take it. He has given them this law which clearly lays out what holiness looks like and what righteousness looks like for an Israelite. And he wants them to keep it. Well, they got that part right. And yet they are leaving this land that he has given them untaken. It reminds me a little bit about Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, God, speaking to himself, says, let us make man in our likeness and our image. 
And let us give him dominion over everything. All of it. The entire earth and everything that lives there. We're going to give man dominion over that. And then what happens? God makes man. And then he tells them, or tells man rather, go conquer it. Go subdue the earth. In the same way, God has given him something that is not yet his. It just requires him to go and take it. Hypothetically speaking, if Adam had never fallen, what it would have looked like is the Garden of Eden expanding until it covered the earth. That would have been pretty cool. Didn't happen that way. And it didn't happen that way with Israel either. Had, had Israel obeyed the way that God had commanded them, they would have taken everything that God had given them. They would have taken all of the land and the promises that were given to Abraham would have been fulfilled in the nation of Israel, but they weren't. So they were concerned about holiness within, which is good. Praise God for that. They stopped being concerned about going and taking the lands that God had given him, given them. And so what, what are we to learn from this? How does this point to Jesus? Jesus and Joshua, as we have mentioned before, is the same name in Hebrew. The one who comes after Moses to bring his people into the promised land. And we've already spent some time drawing some really cool comparisons between Joshua and Jesus. And you can go back and you can listen to those sermons to get that information. But as for now, are you aware that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Have you thought about what that means? Israel never took all the land. God promised them, God promised Abraham that his descendants would dwell in the land. Specific boundaries he set out for Abraham when Abraham was sojourning in Israel. Israel never took all the land. All of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Israel never took all the land. What are we supposed to do with that? In Isaiah, God speaking to Jesus says, Ask, and I will make the nations your inheritance. It is too small of a thing that you be the redeemer of Israel only. Ask of me and I will give you the world. And Jesus on the, on the cross said, yes, Father, I'll take it. And he purchased it with his blood. And by being raised from the dead on the third day, God is saying, you got what you paid for, son. There's this fascinating passage. It's called the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard of it. Come look at it with me. In Matthew 28, Jesus has raised from the dead. He's starting to talk to his people. And then here, in verse 16 of Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him, and they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We, we know what the rest is, 
but rest on that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is king of it all. He has all authority. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament, God says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool beneath your feet. Jesus is on a throne. And what God is doing from the time that Jesus ascends is he is conquering the earth. He is making Jesus' enemies a footstool beneath his feet until one day the increase of his uh, peace and his kingdom will not know any end and he's going to win. Jesus wins, and he is currently conquering because he is the newer and greater Joshua. Because the promised land that was promised to Abraham's seed is not just that little New Jersey-sized strip in the Middle East. No, it is the world. It is not just a 12-tribe people that ends up relatively small in the grand scheme of things. No, it is everyone. Jesus wins. God has given it to him, and God is currently making Jesus' enemies a footstool beneath his feet, and he is conquering. Praise God. We get to be a part of this. But what part are we playing? If we are to use Israel as a parable, what part are we playing? What does God want from us? Is God conquering in spite of us? Is he conquering with us? What's going on there? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One aspect of our role in the greater Joshua's conquering is to go and conquer. Do you believe that? The Great Commission is about going and getting citizens for the kingdom of heaven. And not only getting citizens, but teaching them to be good citizens, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Obviously, that should start with you. We should be concerned about our own personal holiness and our own personal obedience of Jesus' commands. But one of his commands is to go and to conquer. There's also just this, this fascinating bit. A lot of things that happen in Genesis have continuing effects. In fact, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to say that the new covenant found its seed in the curse to the serpent. And that the new covenant grows a little bit when we see uh, Abraham get the promises that he is going to have land and descendants that outnumber the sand of the sea and the stars, and that his descendant is going to bless all the nations. Paul very clearly points and says that that was talking about Jesus. There's stuff in Genesis that applies all the way through. One of those things that doesn't seem to go away is the creation mandate to go and subdue the earth. Okay, so let's think about that for a minute. All of the earth is Jesus's. I think we've established that pretty well. God has given it to Jesus. And in the same way that God gave um, 
the, the land of Gaza, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, to Israel, there's still some of it to be taken. Jesus is the new and greater Adam. Instead of seeing his wife sin, like Adam did, and following her into sin, like Adam did, Jesus comes on the scene and sees his bride under a death curse and says, no, Father, let me take the punishment instead. But being the new and greater Adam, Jesus still has the creation mandate. And being brothers and sisters in Christ, we still have the creation mandate. There's an aspect when we, in which we have to go and subdue the world. What am I trying to say? <laughs> what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is that you engineers are fulfilling the creation mandate. What I'm getting at is that those of you who are making stuff, those of you that are maintaining stuff, those of you that are helping people in, uh, in general overcome sickness and death, even in a temporary way, you are fulfilling the creation mandate. You are obeying what God has commanded of you. Are you doing it in part? We have a tendency to, just like the, uh, the people on the other side of the Jordan, we have a tendency to be concerned with an aspect and miss the holistic part of what God wants from us. Do you have the mindset that ministry, official ministry, preaching, teaching, whatever, is the only work that's really meaningful? Or even discipleship, having people around your table, do you have the mindset that that's the only thing that's really meaningful? Do you downplay your work as a necessary evil? I'm here to tell you, all of it is Jesus's. All of it belongs to Jesus. Your house, your land, your work, it belongs to Jesus. Through that, you can fulfill part of what God has called you to. Now, that's obviously not the only part. Excellence in work is not the only thing that Jesus wants from you. He also wants you to go and make disciples. He wants you to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. And part of the reason that our world is the way it is is because we have not been doing that very well. In Joshua, we see the continued story of people getting ingrown and only being concerned about themselves and their own personal holiness and eventually losing that care too. It moves very smoothly from we're building this altar, the Ed, right, as a witness between us because we're, we're not idolaters. We all want to worship the same God. We move from that seamlessly into judges where the people all did what was right in their own eyes, which means that they did not honor God. It moves seamlessly there. Because what God wanted from them was holistic. It was conquering the land. It was uh, keeping their own holiness. And it was also being a light to the nations. That was something that the Israelites never even considered, how to be a light to the nations. And so I ask you, are you worshiping in part? Are you aware that Jesus wants it all? Are you aware that it all already belongs to Jesus? Are you striving for excellence at your work? Are you seeking to obey all that Jesus has commanded you? Are you going and preaching the gospel? Are you making disciples and teaching them to obey? There is much that Jesus has required of you. There is much land yet to be taken. But Jesus is going to win. Are you going to be a part of it? And some of you might be asking, well, what would it look like? What would that actually look like? I get the idea of preaching the gospel. Okay, I think I understand how that could look. I could, I could talk to my coworkers. Great. 
I could talk to my neighbors. I could have them over for dinner. But what, what would it mean for me to uphold personal holiness? Well, husbands, it looks like loving your wives. Just like Christ loved the church. Wives, it means submitting to your husbands. No qualification. That's what it says. Submit to your husbands. Children, it means obeying your parents. It means letting only wholesome things come out of your mouth that are good for the building up of those who hear. And we could go on because most of the New Testament is concerned with helping you to obey Jesus and to live like he did. What would it look like for you to go conquer in work? It means that it's not just a dead-end job. Even little things, they belong to Jesus. It means working as though Jesus is the one to whom you will have to give an account. If you are an educator, it means educating in a way that people will glorify Jesus at the end. If you are a builder, it means building in such a way so as to not walk away and say, not my job, but rather to build in such a way that Jesus will look at that and say, well done. It expands into every area of life because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So what about our passage in Joshua? We've got the big broad brush on what we're supposed to be doing as Israelites of the new covenant. But what about Joshua? What about this temple? Well, I think that there's a few things that we can learn as Christians from this passage um, that are particularly good for us. Number one, it doesn't take very long to find out that the church in America is splintered. And part of that, part of the reason for that is because we are quick to draw the sword on one another. And they were just building a harmless altar. <laughs> now, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. There are denominations that are heretics. Let us not have fellowship with them. But if you meet a Christian from a different church or a different denomination, is your first response, as mine has been for most of my life, oh, but what do you believe? Are you a heretic? You smell like a heretic. That should not be your first response when you're meeting another Christian. No, when you find out that somebody else is a Christian, your first response should be, we're brothers. Let's do this together, because guess what? There's churches down the street that God is using to conquer the world. We have a Presbyterian church that meets in here in the afternoon. We're lending them our building or renting. I'm not sure. I don't get that side of the thing. But they're Presbyterians. We're not Presbyterians. And they're Presbyterians, but not like that. And, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They believe different things. And that's okay. Because we're still brothers and sisters. It's fine that they're on the other side of the Jordan. Right? <laughs> It's fine. We're brothers and sisters. We are on the right side of the Jordan. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it also means that we should be going and letting people give a defense for what they say before we draw our sword. We should be slow to hack our brothers and sisters to pieces. Okay? We, that should be a very, very slow thing for us to do because we're on the same team, because we have the same king, and because he is conquering the world, and he's doing it through us and them. So search your hearts, brothers and sisters. Are you quick to draw the sword? Are you quick to draw the bow? Are you more concerned 
about other people's holiness than your own? Are you more concerned about how other people are behaving than whether or not you are keeping God's commandments? Are you obeying in part and not understanding that Jesus has a holistic conquering in mind? Be of good cheer. Jesus wins. Go to him in prayer. Jesus wins. He will conquer all. Go to the Father in prayer. He is putting all of Jesus' enemies under Jesus' feet. Go conquer the earth. Go make disciples. Teach them to obey. And lastly, I want to end with this. Um, with Greek, some of us are translating from the New Testament, and we've been going through Revelation recently. And the number of times that Jesus promises rewards to the conqueror is just astounding. To the one who conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life. To the one who conquers, I will give to drink without payment. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, and it's all talking about Christians. We talk a lot about your identity in Christ. Is your identity in Christ a conqueror? If you say no, you are missing one of the primary points. Paul says of us that we are more than conquerors in Jesus because we win. And it's not even like a, a close contest where maybe we're just barely going to win at the end. No, Jesus wins in a landslide. Do you believe that? Do you believe how that should apply across the board in your life? Or have you become petty? Have you started looking only at small things like whether or not somebody's on the wrong side of the Jordan? So brothers and sisters, let's put our swords away. Would you pray with me? We'll go before the conqueror himself. Jesus, we thank you that you are conquering. And Father, we thank you that you have given all things to your son. We thank you that we are part of going and taking that. Jesus, would you make it so that we are living like you would want us to? You are our general, our king. Command us and direct us. Help us to repent where we need to repent and help us to go and excel, excel still more where we are succeeding. Lord Jesus, this is your task. And we ask that you would do it in us. It's in your name and for the good of your church that we pray. Amen.